do you know how blessed we are to have an amazing student ministry team and an awesome youth pastor? Let's give them a big round of applause, too. Well, I was up at Family Camp Silver Birch Ranch last weekend, so how many of you were here and blessed by Pastor Eric Postulik from Harvest Joliet? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I've complained about this before. But when Pastor Eric comes to town, everybody's excited. Well, I hear about it for weeks. Pastor Eric, he's so amazing. I think I told you before that on Vimeo, we post all the sermons from Harvest Palace. And the most watched sermon in Harvest Palace history was Pastor Eric's sermon from a year ago. Yeah, thousand views. So I joked with all of you, I can take a hint. If I'm not your favorite, then maybe Pastor Eric and I need to switch places. And here Pastor Eric comes to town again, holiday weekend, and we take up a $29,000 offering. (laughs) Yeah. So, you are loved. (laughs) I wish the same could be said about me. No, I'm joking. It's awesome to have... Uh, to have a family of churches that, there's about 160 churches that Harvest has planted. There's one in Joliet, there's, there's, there's one in Rockford, there's Harvest churches all over the world. And it's cool that I could just say, hey, Pastor Eric, I'm going to be out of town, you want to come preach? And you know what you're going to get. You're going to get an awesome biblical message preached with heart. And isn't that awesome? We're a church planting church and we are affiliated with many church plants. Make sure you reach out to Pastor Eric and just say thanks to him. You know, he's got to find somebody to fill in when he comes up here. But so blessed that he was able to come and fill in last week. Uh, But we're back into our series now. And I want you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 32. We've been with Moses for a long time. I think this is like the 36th sermon in Moses' life. I mean, if, if I experience just one thing that we've talked about in Moses' life, I feel like my life would get a lot more epic. You know, just one plague, and I think that my life would be worth writing about. But we've spent like 36 weeks with Moses, and we're not even done yet. Today, the title of the sermon is The Golden Calf. Uh, we see how the Israelites passed many tests, many tests, uh, Survive the plagues in Egypt? Check. Walk through the Red Sea? Check. Walk all the way through the plain to Sinai? Check. And then they failed one of the hardest tests of all. And this is one of the hardest tests that God will ever put you through. It's the test of time. It's the test that says, wait here. Many people have passed Serious tests in life, health challenges, financial crisis, relational ch- and then when it's time to wait, they fall apart, and they just can't. The Israelites were waiting at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they failed. We don't like to wait. I read a headline recently, I was reminded of it from 2016. The headline reads this, man gets stuck with 47-year flight connection. Man in a terminal in an airport is told by his travel company that his connecting flight is going to take 47 years before he boards the next plane. (laughs) Nobody likes long layovers during a flight, but that's nothing uh, compared to the flight connection that a guy was offered recently on his uh, He was monitoring on a trip planner called Skyscanner. Skyscanner presented him with a 47-year stopover in Bangkok for a flight from New Zealand to the U.K., Surprised to find the screen saying 413,786 hour wait time for this connecting flight, 
he, connect, he uh, contacted Skyscanner and said on the company's Facebook page, just wondering what you'd recommend I do during the 47-year layover your website has suggested. It was obviously a mistake on the projection, and he was not scheduled for a 47-year layover. But the Skyscanner employee played along and said, unless you're a huge fan of the terminal, I'd probably recommend spending those years outside of the airport. Here are a few suggestions. How do you feel about heights? The moon bar is pretty good and it's open until 1 a.m. So you could spend a good chunk of time there. A cruise on the Chow Phraya River could keep you busy for a while. If you get hungry, there's a floating market. Not only good for grub, but you could make a few mates while you're there. Win, win. Finally, become a Tai Chi expert in Lupini Park. Jen. This is funny because he really didn't have a 47-year layover. But if he did... He would not be a happy traveler. 47 years, who wants to wait that long for anything? We don't like to wait. It's comical to think about waiting 47 years in an airport. But I think that if you saw God's itinerary for your life, you'd be very upset at some of the layovers that he gives you. At some of the wait time that he builds into your story. If the only reason God made you wait for something important was to teach you patience, it would be worth it. If that's it, if there is no other reason for this wait, and you're waiting for things right now in life, and you don't know why. You don't know why God hasn't come through yet. And if the only reason, if he lists one reason why you are waiting for that, and if he only wrote to make you more patient, it would be worth it. Now, usually there's more at play than that. The reason why it's important to become patient is, become, is because patience makes every trial after that better. That's why. If you pass the test of time, it helps every trial after that. If you fail, it hurts you. So the Israelites are stuck with a delay at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was 1500 BC. We've already been through so much, but they're stuck and they can't stand it. Let's pray and then we'll learn from the Israelites how to wait on God. Father, thank you that you are a good God. You have made promises in your word that should settle our hearts through any trial you have made promises in your word that should allow us to be faithful during any delay, but we're not. Help us to understand our own hearts. Help us to understand your heart. Help us to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 32. You and I are now with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, 1500 BC. We've already been through Egypt. The plagues pummeled Egypt. We've seen marvels. We've gone through the Red Sea. We've walked across the plain. Now we're at Sinai. Moses has been gone for a while. For a while. He's been up on this smoldering mountain for like 30 days. Here's a picture of a smoldering mountain. This is, this is like what it probably would have looked like to the Israelites every day. Now if your fearless leader, the founding father of the country, is in that and you haven't seen him or heard from him in like 30 days, then you start getting nervous. And maybe you start to think he didn't make it. And then you start to plan on perhaps moving along. That's exactly what the Israelites did. Check out Exodus chapter 32. And if you actually look back at verse 18 of chapter 31, it says this. God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So where's Moses been all this time? Up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. God revealing to him the truths of heaven so that Moses would come back down. That's what's going on, but the Israelites don't know it. 
They're just down there watching the storm. It said in chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, that's Moses' brother, said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. The first thing that we have to notice here is after all the Israelites had seen, after all the Lord had done, after a blatant experience of the most miraculous thing that had ever happened up to this point in human history, the Israelites were very quick to turn on God and replace Him. We learn about sin. We learn about sin. In Exodus 24, it says that 70 elders went with Moses up the mountain, saw the glory of God and the throne of God, and the floor around it was clear as sapphire, and they had a meal in God's heavenly presence. 30 days later, time to move on. They even made a covenant with God in chapter 24. Oh yes, this God, we, will, we commit ourselves to Him. God made his expectations clear. The people committed to it. He gave them a visible sign of his glorious presence. And he told them there were consequences for disobedience and none of that mattered. Moses and Joshua went up on Sinai and all they said to the people was, wait here. And within a month, they fell off the rails. Now when I hear this story, I say to myself, that's me. I'm like that. If I don't feel like I've experienced something special with the Lord for a while, or I feel like my prayer life is going dry, or whatever, I feel like it doesn't take very long for me to get to a bad place spiritually, and maybe you can agree that that's you too. Number one, you can write this down. Fear the power of sin. Fear the power of sin. This is not a primitive group of people who should have known better. Just remember, if you think to yourself, oh, if I could just see God, oh, if I could just hear his voice, oh, then I would be so much, you would be you, okay? You, plenty of people in the Bible get to talk to Jesus or see God, and guess what? They're them. They say dumb things. They continue to sin after they've had a great revelation. Don't fool yourself into thinking, if only God would up what he gives to me or shows me, then I'd be doing much better. No, you'd be you. You really would. Shockingly. Because of the power of sin. 
We learn a lot here about God. Questions answered in the text here would be, who is God? How do we worship him? How does he reveal himself? These are questions the world is still greatly confused on today. Who is God? Well, we know that God is in heaven. He invites Moses up a mountain. He comes down to reveal himself, and there is one God. How do we worship him? He gives us a law. He shows us his truth. He writes it in stone. How does he reveal himself? Well, he reveals himself in wonders in nature. He reveals himself by literally speaking at times from a mountain. And he sends a mediator down with his law. That's Moses. This is how God reveals himself. Now, the Israelites reject all of that because of the power of sin. And so they make a golden calf. They take some wood and then they shape it like a calf. Then they overlay it with gold and then they say, this is our God. This is a superstitious effort that they're making to control the uncertain. And when it comes to idolatry, most of us have not had a past where we're tempted to have an idol and trust an idol. Uh, but you're around superstitious people all the time, right? Whether they're out there playing baseball or, or they've got their lucky bowling glove or whatever. We, we as humans tend to try and find something to give us an advantage over the things we can't control. We get superstitious. Well, imagine if you got so superstitious that you actually thought that this was your God and you could actually pick him up and move him and control him and shape him. That's the idea behind idolatry. It's a superstitious effort to control the uncertain. This led the um, ancient folks to try and trust idols to control their crops so they could eat, battles so they could win their wars, love so they could have the right person. Idolatry is primarily driven by fear and shame. Fear, fear of the unknown, and shame of what you've done. Now these are really good feelings, fear and shame, but they should drive us into the presence of the one and true God. And these experiences of fear and shame should drive us to the promises of God. We don't need anything else to help us cope with these forces. In some Christian traditions, they're very big on icons or statues or holding something special or getting a holy this or a blessed that. It's all superstition. None of that helps you have an advantage in the spiritual realm. None of it. There's nothing magical about anything on this planet. Nothing. You have no advantage. It's not like because I'm holding this, I have a megaphone and God hears me more. It's all false. And it reveals a lack of faith. It also reveals the power of sin. So what do we do? Well, jot this down. Listen to God's word. When God makes you wait, if you want to pass that test, you have to listen to God's word. Understanding the power of sin means being able to define what sin truly is. And as humans, we can't construct sin on our own. We need truth from heaven so that we can even define the temptation. Listen, without God's word, we can't even define sin, let alone defeat sin. If you're just making sin up as you go along and deciding what's right and wrong, you're going to be confused and in bondage. But if you let God tell you what sin is so that you can avoid it, you can walk in freedom. God literally was giving Moses truth from heaven. It says that God inscribed the Ten Commandments with his own fingers. This is God giving us truth so that we know how to avoid sin. I saw this funny picture on Facebook recently about Moses. Do you ever see this? Here's what it says. This picture of Moses says, Technically, Moses was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud. <laughs> there he is. But look at that picture. He's holding something. How, how can God make it more clear than 
I'm going to bring Moses up a mountain. I'm going to set the mountain on fire. Moses won't die. He'll walk back down and he'll show you something I etched in stone with my own finger. That's truth. That's truth. There's no greater way for God to show us this is the truth. When I was in Romania, I visited this church, and here's what I saw. I saw this like old school printing press from the 1500s, and the priest there was telling us how it worked. The printing press in the 1500s revolutionized the world because now we move from oral to written communication, and you could mass produce books and literature, and, and because of that, word could get out about different uh, different thoughts, you know, political views, and the printing press actually contributed to the American Revolution a lot just because of how much how information we could get out rapidly. But these early printing presses, this is called the block press, the block book method. The way it worked was some guy who's good with a knife needed to sit down and whittle each page into wood. All the words, illustrations, I don't know, page number one, done. Then another page, he had to whittle the whole book. So it took two years to print a book. Remember that the next time your inkjet is getting on your nerves. All right, it's taking a little time. Two years for a book because it had to carve the block and then stamp it. And Wow, well, they're not going to waste time printing nonsense with that method. Think about what it was like when Moses came down. This is like etched in stone. It's like in a whittled in wood. Like this is serious stuff how God was conveying it to us. So we have to listen to God's word. Do you fear the power of sin while you're waiting? When God hasn't come through yet, are you listening to his word or are you breaking his law? Are you breaking his heart because you just won't wait? Jot this down. We have to resist temptation to drift and to doubt. We see in the Israelites what it feels like to drift and to doubt. In Acts seven thirty nine, when Stephen was on trial in the New Testament, here's what he said about this period. He said, our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, listen, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They were going to go back to Egypt. They were going to appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. That's a portrayal of you and me having the temptation to turn back, turn our backs on God, and in our hearts go back to the land of slavery and sin. You're tempted, I'm tempted, and you're especially tempted when you're waiting for something, when you're in the test of time. You can thrust Jesus aside and turn your back on him and go into sin. If you do this, this could mean you were never saved. If you kind of were around Christians for a while, but then when life gets hard, you just, you just abandon it, then you never really had it. But if you have an established track record of walking with Christ, and then you just go through a season of backsliding, then God is saying, hey, it's time to get back with my son. Here's a picture of somebody in a boat who's deciding whether or not to go out and have a little fun in that boat. Now, would you go out to see if that's what you saw? I wouldn't do that. And this is what the Israelites were tempted to do. They were tempted to drift. They were tempted to go out away from the safe shore where God had landed them into the darkness. And they failed the temptation. Listen, I don't know what you're waiting for right now. I don't know how long you've been waiting, but don't run from God. Run to God. Don't drift from God. Draw near to God in your time of waiting, and He will draw near to you. Pass the test of time. 
Fear the power of sin. Listen to God's word. Resist temptation and drift in doubt. Jot this down. Rid your heart of rival gods. Rid your heart of rival gods. See, you won't just be tempted to turn on God when you're waiting. You'll be tempted to turn to someone or something else that can get you through the agony. This could be a a variety of different things that you are substituting for God. But do you know how to find your rival gods? Do you know? How do you locate your rival gods? Well, our fundamental needs are we want to feel secure, we want to feel satisfied, we want to feel significant. Our rival gods usually are trying to help us get one of those or all of those three things. I want to feel more secure, so I'm going to race feverishly after money. More money than I could ever know what to do. I'm going to chase it and trust it, because then I'll be secure, and my kids will be secure, and false God. But if you're struggling with security, you will find a rival God to try and fill that void. And then there's satisfaction. I just want to feel calm. I just want to have fun. I, satisfaction. I just want my, I just don't want to worry about anything anymore. I just don't want to fight anymore. Satisfaction. I can't be in this marriage anymore because I don't want to fight anymore. You just want satisfaction, right? And that, that will get you chasing rival gods. Uh, satisfaction can mean you just want the pain to stop. And that's where the pills come in. And that's where the addictions come in. And that's where the substances come in. False God. False God. This God will take my pain away. And now I'm, I'm chained and hooked and bound up to this substance because it's bringing satisfaction. If you do struggle with substances, you have to understand that at the heart of that struggle predominantly is you saying to God, I will not suffer this pain. You're protesting pain God has put in your life, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. And until you get to the root of that, that you're making a willful decision to tell God you won't allow this pain in your life, that's where the epidemic is coming from. Resist temptation to drift into doubt. Rid your heart of rival gods. Security, satisfaction, significance is the other one. I want to be someone. I want people to listen to me. And then your career becomes your God. I'm going to be a somebody. You can locate your rival gods by following your sins. Oh, you might behave in many areas of your life, but you can find an idol because you will sin to get it, you will sin to keep it, and you will sin if someone takes it away from you. This can be a person in your life who you will sin to get, sin to keep, and sin if there's any any fear that you will lose them. It could be a person. It could be a habit. Follow your sins and you'll find your idols. How are you doing at making sure money doesn't become your God or career or leisure? I need more me time. Or sex or relationships or sports. What rules you? Look at your time. Look at your treasure. Look at your toil. And if anything in your life or anyone in your life is competing with Christ for first place, that idol needs to be tossed out on the street. Number one, fear the power of sin. The Israelites failed the test of time and they ran to an idol. Number two, jot this down, harness the power of prayer. Harness the power of prayer. It says in verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. All this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What we see here is a prayer that saves a million lives. Listen, what we see here is a prayer that saves a million lives. God was about to wipe them out. All of them. All of them. They're all gone. And one man got on his knees and saved a million lives. Do you believe prayer is that powerful? I think if we woke up tomorrow morning and God decided to unanswer the prayers he had answered, like reverse them, there'd be people in this room who wouldn't be here anymore. What a different world we would be in. Harness the power of prayer. Moses mentions Abraham, Isaac. There's a covenant God made with Abraham. So Moses is making his appeal based on God's promises. Do you see how central God's word is to finding God's will? You promised Abraham that you would establish this nation. Through that nation would come a blessing. He's reminding God who he is. He's banking on that. We must, jot this down, intercede for those who are falling. We must intercede for those, with those who are falling. Prayer teaches us love because we can concern ourselves with others. And prayer also teaches us patience, which every Christian needs to learn. I like what John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, said about prayer in 400 AD. Here's what he said. The potency of prayer hath subdued the strength of fire, bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course. Prayer is a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted. It is the root the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I love asking people that question. I ran the Chicago Marathon a few years ago, and there was um, a woman there who was in the crowd, and she saw me run by, and she and her husband were about to go into ministry uh, up in Michigan. So she ran up alongside me to encourage me, you know. And I wasn't running that fast because my legs were broken. So I was like, how are you doing? She's like, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm like, I'm okay. So you guys are going to the ministry, huh? She's like, yeah. I said, how's your prayer life? She was like, uh, that was years ago. And she just told somebody recently, I never forgot that. I never forgot that he asked me that. That rings in my ears. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Here I'm trying to encourage him and he's challenging me. How's your prayer life? We must intercede for those who are falling. Hey, you have a lot of grief for those in your life who aren't living God's way, but are you agonizing in prayer for them? Are you? And this idea that one man could get on his knees, God's not playing a game here. God's not like, I'm going to kill him. And then Moses is like, please don't. And then God's like, okay, I won't. This isn't a game. God's not faking. He's doing something to show the world how he operates. A righteous man gets on his knees in my presence, asks me, 
intercedes, and they live because he prayed. This idea of intercession is supposed to get the world ready for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would become the mediator in heaven between God and man. God wants to send a loud and clear message to all of us. Someone needs to stand in my presence and plead for your life for you to live, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jot this down. Here's a New Testament takeaway from this. Rely on Jesus to intercede for you and others. God allowed Moses to intercede and it saved millions of lives. This foreshadowed Christ, the one who would stand between God and man. Job longed for this. Job, when he was suffering, said, if only there was someone who could put his hand on me and God and mediate between us. And guess who does that? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who stands in God's presence as the great high priest, and he died so you could live. Listen, when you stand before the pearly gates of heaven, your book is going to condemn you to die. The only reason you'll be allowed into Jesus is because someone's in the king's presence talking for you. Wait a minute, you mean I'm not going to get into heaven because I was a pretty good person? Nope, good people don't get into heaven. Saved people get into heaven. Saved people get into heaven. And you've got someone, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the authority to go to the king and and get on his knees and be a mediator. And this is the Lord Jesus. The Bible says when he walked the earth, Jesus cried out with loud prayers and shouts and he was heard by God. Jesus prayed for Peter. He said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter, I've prayed for you. And right now, we have one in heaven who intercedes for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand how to relate to God That your relationship with, this is the gospel. Do you understand that your relationship to God hinges on the fact that there's one person with the authority to represent you in God's court? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You're alive because he pled for your life. That's why you're alive. You get to go to heaven because he asked the Father. That's why. If you're like, no, 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 me and God are fine. I can go straight to him. You don't understand your sin. You don't understand the penalty of your sin and the need for a mediator. Moses getting on his knees and saving a million lives foreshadowed Jesus who would save us forever. Are you saved? Are you saved? Is your relationship with God a mediated relationship where you know you could never hope to to belong in God's presence, but he sent his son down to bring you up? Mediation is a huge part of how we relate to God. So number one, fear the power of sin. Number two, harness the power of prayer. When you go into God's presence, you can ask Jesus for a blessing and someone will experience it and they don't deserve it because you asked the king. That's mediation. It's mediation. Number three, jot this down. Pass the test of time. Pass the test of time. It says in verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Singing. Singing. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing... Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Wow. You ever get so mad? It's one of those days where you just want to throw things on the ground. I mean, it's time to smash some stuff, right? Uh, Moses threw the tablets on the ground, crashed them, which 
is a portrayal of what God's people were doing with his word. I've been up on this mountain meeting with God, getting this law, and I come down here and you're all dancing around a calf. Moses must have felt like such a huge failure. Remember, they were replacing Moses. So imagine you showing up to work tomorrow morning, right? And they're like, sorry, we had to replace you. And you're like, what? Yeah. We got an upgrade. What? Who did you replace me with? Bring it out, boys. And they bring out this block of wood covered in gold. And you're like, a cow statue? And they're like, no, a magical cow statue. They replaced Moses with a block of wood covered in gold. What did it feel like to be Moses? They failed the test of time. They failed the test of waiting. How are you doing at passing the test of waiting? Are you willing to trust God while you wait? The Israelites are teaching us about ourselves here. It didn't take long for them to rush to something they could control. Really, sin's greatest promise is faster delivery. It's usually something good that you want, that God has planned for you, but you just won't wait for it. Sin often just gives faster delivery. It's kind of Satan's best trick. I can give it to you now. There are so many tests in life. Over the summer, our kids have had to pass swim tests, right? My daughter is getting ready for her driving test so she can get her license. Test, test. You can go to the doctor and get a stress test. But the test of time is one of the hardest tests to pass. Israel is showing us what it feels like to wait. When you wait, jot this down. Here's what you should allow the wait to do in your heart. Let the delay deepen your faith in God's goodness. You can write that down. Let the delay deepen your faith in God's goodness. Is that what's happening in your heart right now while you wait? Is that what you're saying to others? You know what? I'm just more confident now than ever before that God is good. Or are you rethinking who God is? Well, I thought he was this, but now he must be that because of this. Are you more resolved in your definition of God now because you're waiting, or are you ready to throw that out the window? Say it. Say it even if you don't feel it. I believe God is good. I know my God. Don't long for a different God. Let delay Deepen your faith in God's goodness. Jot this down. Let delay strengthen your grip on God's promises. Say it to yourself. I trust God's word. The Apostle Paul was on a sinking ship on a missionary journey, and an angel showed up in the middle of that storm and said, you're going to make it to shore. All these people will survive because you prayed, but the ship's going to go down. Bye. Oh, we all love the story of when Jesus calms the storm. Hush, hush. And then they just glide up to shore. What about the story when he doesn't calm the storm? When an angel shows up on the boat and says, you're all about to crash, the ship's going to sink, but I promise you'll all make it to shore. And Paul stood up on that ship and said, I believe it will be to me exactly as I have been told. And then they all made it. They were clinging to, you know, planks. They all made it. Is that your heart? Strengthen your grip on God's promises. Jot this down. Let the delay display your confidence in God's plan. Display your confidence in God's plan. 
What am I supposed to do when it seems like everything's going wrong? Talk to God and ask Him to show you that He is real and awesome. Talk to God and ask Him to show you that He is real and awesome. That's what you do with doubt. Talk to God. You have high expectations on Him. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. But I trust you. I trust your promises. And I trust your plan. Moses was not happy. So where do we leave off here? It says in verse 20, Moses took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. You think he was fired up? The, the book of uh, Deuteronomy in 9 and 10 retells this story. And he went up in the brook and put the dust in the water so that it would flow down and the people would have to drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil? For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have, who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. How many of you have kids? Raise your hand if you have kids. Can you hear this? Where did this come from? I don't know. It just jumped out of the fire. Earlier in the story, it showed that Aaron hand-carved this. Aaron also, it says, a lot of leadership lessons in here, was trying to walk the line of pleasing both crowds. So he declared, let's have a feast to the Lord, everyone. After he hand-carved the calf. And he's like, sure, we'll worship. So much confusion. Sin is so confusing. Uh, yeah, I, I can worship the Lord and sit down and, and, and be a Christian on Sunday and then go out and live for money or sex on, on Tuesday. And, and then Wednesday it's back to small group. And then Thursday it's out to the boat. And then on fr- and both ways. You can't have it both ways. He's so wishy-washy. And so deceptive. It says in verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron, very clear, let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. These are the Levites. He said to them, thus says the Lord of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. See, there's a new nation here. It's a theocracy. God's on the throne. They're forming everything, a priesthood. They're for, they don't have a government. They're forming a government. They put people in charge of thousands, and they have law enforcement. And the Levites were law enforcement. Because it's a theocracy, a rising up rebellion against God, as Moses understands, threatens the lives of the entire country. If Moses doesn't get the rebellion out of the camp, everyone dies. So this is a special case. This isn't in any way the way that ordinarily things should work. Oh, there's people who are dishonoring the Lord. Let's get our swords. This is a very special time in salvation history. And it says here, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. That day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So we don't know if they went out and got the 
the men who started this rebellion or whatnot, the people who wouldn't give it up. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. There are certain times in life where your sin will cost you your life. There are certain choices you can make in life that are unalterable. You will change every day from that day forward. And at the foot of Sinai, when God's glory was glowing on the mountain and the man was coming down with the law, this brazen sin, this we will not have this God rule over us, cost these men their lives. And there are some people in this room who know better. You know better than the sin you're choosing right now. You have been raised better. You know better. And sometimes you just need to look someone who you love in the eye and say, you know better than this. And this is going to cost you. I recently rekindled a, uh, an old friendship with somebody who I know back in my old church. We've been having great conversations, but part of the conversation we've had is, you turned. You, you turned. And he's starting to wake up to the reality of what that has cost him over the last 10 years. You turned. Jot this down, number four. Avoid the penalty of rebellion. Avoid, avoid the penalty of rebellion. 3,000 people died. 3,000 people died because of this sin. We see here that our hearts are naturally hostile to God. Sometimes people come right out blatantly and admit this. Maybe you heard in the news the president of the Philippines, who is known for being like just very crude and vulgar, and the president is very macho and very... So he, he hit the news recently. Time magazine quoted him because during a press conference he was talking about the creation story, and Adam and Eve did this, and then, and then he complained about how, how God tempted them to do something wrong. And so he flat out said, who is this stupid God? That's what he said. Catholics in that country are not happy, but now he's in hot water. Sometimes people will just come right out and say, who is this stupid? They will be so blatantly anti-God. But other people are more subtle. Well, you know, not just you do you. I'll live my truth, and yours is fine, and I have mine. And they're very gracious, but they're just as godless. You can be very gracious and just as godless. You know that? But we have to avoid the penalty of rebellion. The text says that they were partying, dancing, singing, and playing for an idol. They were celebrating. Some scholars say, well, you know, they were involved in sexual immorality and that well, that's not what the text says. They could be. They could be. But it wasn't the way they were celebrating the idol that the Bible highlights. The Bible highlights the fact that it was the idol. It was the, sure, it maybe suggests that there was some sexual sin also, but what they were doing with the idol was enough to cost them their lives. That's sobering. They bowed to it. They sacrificed to it. They thanked it. They were moving on. God would not let his people be swayed to turn back to bondage. And that's why the penalty came. Pastor James McDonald, who started our movement of church plants, uh, is famous for saying, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And we will suffer when we sin. He also says when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Sin will lead to pain. So jot this down. We have to fear God's judgment. We have to fear his warnings. Anytime you and I choose sin, we have to first believe that God won't provide for us and God won't punish us. Any sin we choose, we fool ourselves into believing those two things. Well, God won't provide for me and he won't punish me, so now I'll sin. But God's warnings apply to you. 
We have to be afraid of God's discipline. And jot this down. We have to follow God's leadership. We have to follow God's leadership. There's a lot of authority wrapped up in this, and it's fashionable today for people to be like, well, it's just me and God. No, God has built authority into your life to show you how you should live. So um, I've been thinking a lot about something one of our elders said recently at a meeting. He said, well, when it comes to humility, humility is a response to authority. And authority only happens in community. And the community has to include accountability. So if someone refuses community and accountability, they won't place themselves under authority, and therefore it's just not possible for them to experience humility. So if you say to yourself, well, I'm good with God, I'm living a fine life, but you're not in community, you're not under authority, and you won't be held accountable for your actions, then the truth is you're not living out God's way. If you have a big problem with authority, that's one way that you're telling God, I will not be led. I will not be led. And this is what the Israelites are struggling with right here. Moses, who's he? Avoid the penalty of rebellion by seeing how this comes about. Hey, how are you doing with waiting? As we bring this message to a close and we see a cautionary tale here of the human heart, how quickly we are to turn to idols, how quick we are to turn on God, how much we refuse authority and leadership. No one's going to tell me what to do. How are you doing at waiting? How are you doing at following God humbly? How's that going? Because God's plan for you is that you would fear the power of sin by listening to his word, resisting temptation, and ridding your heart of rival gods. God's plan is that you would harness the power of prayer while you wait by interceding for others and knowing that we all rely on Jesus to, to intercede for us and others. How are you doing at passing the test of time? Is it deepening your faith, strengthening your grip on his promises, and displaying your confidence in his plan? And are you being careful to avoid the penalty of rebellion? Let me close by reading a definition of worship by William Temple. And let's just use this as an opportunity to get our hearts right with God, to you know, kind of get our souls screwed on straight, to make sure that we're not caught up in the fog of rebellion and idolatry in our hearts. Here's what William Temple said. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, nourishment of mind by His truth, purifying of imagination by His beauty, opening of the heart to His love, and submission of will to His purpose. Does that describe you now? While you wait, does that describe you? Fill your heart with love for the Lord and trust for Him, and He will walk you through this season of waiting. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close out this message together. Father, we hate waiting. We can't stand the thought of delay. We want what we want now, and we don't want anyone to stand in the way of that. We feel insecure. We feel restless. We feel bored. We feel overlooked or ordinary or underappreciated. And all of these things drive us to idols, things and people who claim to be able to fill our soul with things that only you can provide. I pray now, Lord, that as we look at such a horrible tale that threw a million lives in jeopardy, Lord, as we look into a, a story of 
people who should have known better turning their backs on a holy God remind us who we are. We're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Father, I just pray for any here today who feel like they have slipped, they have, they have slid away, they've wandered, they're, they're drifting farther and farther away from you. And Lord, they just see the cross as just a, a dot on the horizon now and they haven't pursued you in a long time, they haven't prayed to you in a long time, their attitude is, is dark. Lord, may they come back. I pray that they would come back now before it's too late, that they would come into your presence humbly, accept the trial that you have appointed for them, and wait patiently for their God. Lord, I pray for those who have never trusted you. They've never called out to you. They've always thought they're fine. They have never realized that the consequences of sin include death forever and hell. Lord, I just pray that as they fear your wrath, and understand their need for mediation, that maybe for the first time they would come in the presence of Jesus, the great high priest, and say, Jesus, take away my sin. Take away my sin. Be my representative to the Father. Lord, I pray that some would cry out right now asking for that, that they would turn from their rebellion and idolatry. Lord, we know that as we trust you and keep our eyes fixed on you, that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. All things. And there are some chapters we would rather rip out of our story, but those will ultimately show you off like nothing else can. Lord, we would rather not have pain. We would rather not have delay. We would rather not have suffering. But you're a great author. You know how to write good stories. So we trust you to hold the pen. Lord, we trust you to hold the pen to write the story. You don't need us. So as our faith grows stronger, we pray that you would write stories that will reveal your glory to people who need to see it. Lord, as we grow more and more patient, we pray that you would show us that our faith is not in vain. Sustain us, lead and guide us and protect us. Answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. And we pray that the world would know that there is one true God in the heavens. and He is good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.